Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So we've been in this section for quite a while from Luke chapter 14. And uh, some actually take Luke 17, 11 as kind of a key moment from this long passage of where Jesus had been invited to a Pharisee's house. He had dinner at that house. There was a man who was there that was in need of healing. It was a Sabbath day. Jesus rebuked the religious rulers. This is all back in chapter 14. We've been looking at this for quite a while. He rebuked them, healed the man, sent him on his way, had a few words to say then to the religious rulers. And in chapter 15, we find the Pharisees and the scribes complaints about Jesus complaining that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it caused him to teach three parables that we actually looked at from Matthew's gospel earlier this year. But the three parables referred to the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. And to really not only uh, see the extent of finding that which was lost, but the celebration that took place once that lost item or individual was found, whether a coin, a sheep, or a person. But also, I believe God used both of these parables to say that with the lost coin, there were nine other coins. With the lost sheep, there was 99 other sheep. With the lost son, the father had another son. And it wasn't as if in each situation that the person watching over the woman with the lost coins, uh, shepherd with the lost sheep, or the father with his lost son, it wasn't as if he had no other coins, she had no other coins, or the shepherd had no other sheep, or the father had no other son but that there was the great celebration, the joy, the gathering together when that which was lost was found. And then with the prodigal son, there was the Lord pointing out that the brother, he was really upset. He complained because of the celebration that his father had over his lost brother who was then found and came home and basically saying, I've been here the whole time, and never once did you let me have just a small little goat to have a party with my friends, and here this this prodigal comes home, and you break out the fatted calf, and you have this huge party, and um, it's just not right. Well, Jesus used those to really talk about the religious rulers. He was pointing out that they had been there, In their mind, faithfully serving God, they knew what the Word of God said. They conducted themselves uh, in ways that made them look like they were very religious at heart. They conducted themselves in public in ways that people looked up to them. And in fact, Jesus said, whatever they tell you to do, do. But don't follow what they do. So when they taught the Word of God, they're teaching the Word of God, follow the Word of God, but don't follow what they are doing, 
because they actually were not part of the family of God. They were there, but they were not part of the family of God. And there are many in our world today that sit in churches even this day that they're there, but they're not really believers. They participate, but they don't know truly know Jesus. And so he used chapter 15 to really point out a number of things. Last week we looked at chapter 16 in two parables in the chapter and then a few kind of proverbial sayings in between the two parables. One was directed to his disciples. The other was directed to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and that of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And today in chapter 17, verse 11, it becomes key because it says, And now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of the Samaritans and that of Galilee. So Samaria and Galilee, two regions in Israel. So many theologians take that everything we've been looking at from Luke 14 until Luke 17:10 was all on a Sabbath day. I don't know if I quite agree with that, but I'm not going to argue about it. We do know. And, and the only thing that would hold me back slightly on that is that it does tell us that Jesus was on the move again at a certain point. In Luke 14:25, great multitudes went with him. So he went out of the ruler's house and he was on the road someday. It, it could, in fact, be all on the Sabbath day. But we do know, and we've been here for a while, because in our chronological journey through the Gospels, um, Luke is kind of very uh, independent in most of what is written from Luke 14 into uh, much of Luke chapter 18. And so we will very soon get into that chronological sense of looking at the other Gospels as well. But today, we're all in on Luke chapter 17. And there's a lot of scripture, so I want to get to it. Not as much as we had on Wednesday night. Had one chapter that had 68 verses in it, and I taught two chapters on Wednesday. So... I probably won't be reading as fast as I was trying to read on Wednesday, but we do want to get into this teaching. I titled it Living in the Kingdom. That kingdom theology really doesn't come into play until verse 20, but just to give it an overall theme, we have Jesus and his disciples in verses 1 through 10. A one who returned, looking at 10 men who had leprosy, in verses 11 through 19, in the coming kingdom of God, 20 through 27. And so we'll pick up in Luke 17, our very first point, Jesus and his disciples. And it tells us in verses 1 and 2, Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he was thrown into the sea, then that he should offend one of these little ones. And so, scandalon is the Greek word that is used and translated for us as offense in this passage. He who offends, uh, he who causes, and you know, scandalon, we get the word uh, scandalous from that um, in our English word. Um, 
it, it is a word in the Greek that means to lay a trap or a snare for an enemy. And here Jesus uses it to speak about teaching others to sin. Now, considering that we live in a fallen world, Jesus reminds us that offenses will come. There will be scandal on. There will be offense. And it is important that we don't participate in the offenses of the world. In Romans 14, 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a scandal on, a stumbling block, or a cause to fall in a brother's way. Offenses will come, but let us resolve this, not to be the one who causes someone else to stumble. Here, Jesus and Matthew and Mark also have a portion of this worded a little bit differently, but in each situation, he's dealing with little ones, with children. And he said, causing a little one to stumble, it'd be better... If you tie a millstone, which weighed about 500 pounds, around someone's neck and toss them in the sea. Now, if you have a 500-pound stone wrapped around your neck, you're not coming up again. You're going down, and you're going to stay there. And yet, in our world today, especially here in the United States and many of the Western societies in Europe, we find as well that there is a current crisis in our world, in our country especially, of laying stumbling blocks before our children, before our youth. They are those who are teaching them to sin. And Jesus said, it would be better for them if they would just have the stone tied around their neck and cast them in the sea. But for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're to guard ourselves. We are to be protector protectors of our children. We're to do our best not to be the one bringing offense or teaching others to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. The purpose of not bringing offense is that you can bring others to salvation in Jesus Christ. We need to show people a better way and not give in to their distorted views or um, twisted ideas, but to show them a better way, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, and he's just kind of hitting a few points, and, and they're not necessarily tied together, but here we find that if there's a sinning brother or sister in verses 3 and 4, that we are to take heed to ourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, one of the big things that stood out to me in, in these two verses is really in verse 3, where it tells us if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. You were to say something. And a lot of times we have people do something against us. We don't say anything. Um, it never gets resolved. There becomes this barrier between the individuals because it just they don't take the time to work out 
whatever the situation was, to give opportunity for repentance and forgiveness to take place. Now, Jesus took it further, and and this kind of drives me crazy because, Jesus, I don't want to have to obey verse 4. You may have taught it, but it doesn't mean me and my flesh really like it because I can tell you right now, if somebody wrongs me seven times a day and then comes back to me seven times a day and say, oh, I'm sorry, it's not going to last very long. Because, for one, I'm not going to really believe that they're sorry if they keep doing something over and over again. Yet, this may be a counter to rabbinical tradition that had taught in their day that if someone wronged you up to three times, you were, if they asked for forgiveness, to forgive them. But they kind of limited it at the number three And it also reminds us of Peter who asked a similar thing saying, if someone sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Up to seven times. And you remember that Jesus said in Matthew 18, 22 through, or 21 and 22, Matthew 18, 21 and 22 saying, I do not say up to seven times, but 70 times seven. We're just, the idea is that we're not to keep count. Now, Let's think about it in a different light. Now, I had already said, I admitted to you that if someone seven times a day, they wrong me, and they seek forgiveness seven times a day, the Lord said I should forgive them, that it would get old from my perspective pretty fast. And then when I think about that, I think, Lord, I probably do it more than seven times a day to you. That, Lord, your grace is even so greater that you are able to forgive May we be like our Father, our Savior Jesus, who is willing to forgive, who has saved us and willing to put up with us as we, um, as part of the body of Christ, try to serve together one another in sincerity, in truth, dealing with situations when they come up, if need be, rebuking a brother or sister, uh, seeking the person's forgiveness, responding with forgiveness. It's all about the idea is to gain a brother or sister. It's not to divide the body of Christ, but to bring the body of Christ together. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. So it is important as the body of Christ, to strive to have strong relationships of peace between one another. There's this other sense, if we don't or choose not to forgive or choose not to deal with the situation, a root of bitterness can rise up. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 tells us this, that we are to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, and looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble. And by this, many are defiled. And so, uh, by this, many are... It just made me think of, uh, you know, um, I don't know why it came to mind, but it did, the Hatfield and the McCoys down in the Old South. 
You know, two men got going at each other one day that involved their whole families shooting and, I mean, this is way back in the 1800s, but shooting and killing one another. And um, it caused many people to become defiled because two men were not able to settle their differences between themselves. Now, that's an extreme, but it can happen in a lesser extreme in our families. We can see that, how it can happen to cause family members to side with one another in a dispute and really bring division in the family and not bring the family together. And again, as I said, he's kind of jumping on a few different points here. And in 5 and 6, he deals with mustard seed faith. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So most within the church today, it's easy for us to say, Lord, increase our faith. I, I mean... Don't you believe? To me, it's just it's an obvious thing. Lord, make me stronger. Increase my faith. It's something that we should desire. But Jesus points out to his disciples, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. At that time, it was the smallest known seed in that region of that day. And they have a mustard seed plant that can grow up to 12 feet in height. Other portions of scripture, it grows so tall that birds can nest in it. And so it's a very small seed that can produce a very large plant, large enough for some birds to even desire to nest in the plants, though not a tree. But Jesus is pointing out here, he points out in Matthew 17, 20, that faith as small as a mustard seed is sufficient to transplant a mulberry tree, transplant a mountain into the sea. And this is kind of like saying a camel going through an eye of a needle. So Jesus isn't literally speaking here, but it doesn't take a lot of faith to move great things. And I think the point that we need to understand in, in uh, Matthew's account, he points out that faith without doubting, that if you have faith, Matthew and Mark, both they have that faith that is without doubting. Small faith, without doubting, can move great things. In fact, in Mark's account, it says in Mark 9, 23, all things are possible to him who believes. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, and does not doubt. The Word of God tells us in Hebrews eleven six that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And it amazes me how just little our faith needs to be to see God do great things. And it causes me, though, to question how big is my faith. And I think maybe that's just a bad question. Jesus points out the necessity of having faith and really isn't dealing with how large the faith is. All we need is faith without doubt, and it is sufficient to see God do great things. 
And then he speaks about to close up with his disciples the servant's duty. Verses 7 through 10, he says, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come, and at once sit down and eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, gird yourself, serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did these things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all these things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty. So what has he commanded us thus far? We had seen that when offenses come, we're to rebuke a brother, seek forgiveness, and forgive if that person asks. Um, we're not to scandal on. We're not to trip up someone, especially the children. We're to watch over them. We're to have faith without doubting, and we are to do our duty. So Jesus gives this example of a servant. A servant was always a servant. Servants didn't work from nine to five. And then, you know, I'll see you tomorrow, boss, and then come back the next day. If they and their master were out in the field working all day long when they came in, it was still their responsibility to care for the needs of the master before they got to partake and eat and drink. And I would say probably what they ate and drank was a lot different from what the master ate and drank, but still it was their duty to serve. And Jesus is pointing out that it's our duty to walk in obedience to the Lord. It's our duty to serve the Lord and to do these things and to know that unprofitable, that we are not worthy. We are not worthy for the great gifts that the Lord has bestowed upon us to call us as part of his family of God. But yet the Lord has bestowed these great gifts upon us. And we are to serve him for, for him who has saved us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 18, or 16 through 18, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. And what is then my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul, using an example of his calling as an apostle in the church, he was saying, this was laid upon me and I have nothing to boast about. This is the calling that the Lord has given me to do and is what I am called to do. Therefore, I must do that. And there's no reward in that. If I seek a reward, some kind of financial gain because of it, then I'm abusing the authority that Christ has given me. He has called me to preach the gospel. He has called me, I believe, the very same, not as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but a preacher and teacher of the word of God. And it is my duty to do such. But I believe that God gives us each a calling. 
each a way in which we are to serve the Lord, each a gifting that we can use um, to serve Christ and to serve others. And it's then our responsibility to search out sometimes what that calling may be and then to use the gifts that he has given us. Not that any praise should come upon us, but as the body of Christ, that together we can use our gifts and talents for the glory of Christ and for the building of his kingdom. Philippians 3, 8 through 10, again, Paul speaking, Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so to live in God's kingdom means that we rest when the Lord calls us home. So until then, there's work to be done. Until then, uh, we have an opportunity to serve the Lord and to serve one another. So he goes on to talk about, and he's on the move again. He's in Samaria and Galilee. We learn that in verse 11. But he's making his way to Jerusalem, and this is his final journey before the cross. So he is kind of making his way to Jerusalem. He's got to go. There'll be the triumphal entry. All that is coming. But right now, he's in Samaria. He's in the Galilee. And it was while he entered a certain village, we'll pick up in verse 12, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. This is because this is what they were called to do in that society. They had leprosy. They were not to be part of the general population. And so they were on the outskirts of the population. And so they stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices in verse 13, said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said, go, show yourself to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. So 10 men with leprosy in this certain village, we don't know where, uh, but there is a Samaritan. We do learn that. So it could be in Samaria, but it could be in the Galilee as well. They had what is known today as Hansen's disease. And today this can be controlled by medication. It is still as an unhealable. Um, but then it would damage, and if untreated today, it would cause skin, nerves, limbs, eyes, uh, damage to their body, but ultimately leading to death. And so they were to do certain things and we read about it in Leviticus 13:45 through 46 and in fact Leviticus 13 and 14 the chapters all deal with leprosy but specifically with the one who had leprosy this is what they were to do Leviticus 13:45 and 46 now the leper on whom there is the sore his clothes shall be torn his hair head bare he shall cover his must mustache cry out unclean unclean he shall be unclean all the days that he has a sore he shall be unclean he is unclean and he will dwell alone he will dwell outside the camp so this is a horrible horrible thing they were put apart from the community apart from family and they only lived off the mercy of others and sometimes not even that at the garbage heaps there from the community 
And they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard them, and he responded to them and said, Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went out, they were cleaned. And I think this is significant. Significant in the sense of Jesus commanded them what to do, but it wasn't until they began to do what Jesus commanded them to do, go show yourself to the priest. As they went, they were made clean. Now, they could have said, but we're not clean, so why should we go to the priest? They could have just stayed and did nothing, and I personally believe that nothing then would have happened. They needed to go. We have a great account of this in Second Kings chapter 5 of a Syrian commander who was a leprous man. He was a great and mighty man in the Syrian army. And yet he had leprosy, and a slave girl in his household from Israel said there is a prophet in Israel that perhaps he could do something for you. And so he went to the king in Israel, and the king in Israel said, what can I do? I can't heal anyone of leprosy. And he learned about Elijah. And he went to the house of Elijah, and he called out to Elijah, and in his mind, he thought how things should take place, that Elijah would come out of his house, that Elijah would maybe raise his hand, maybe put his mantle on him, done some kind of great thing, but Elijah didn't even come out. All he did was send out his servant, and the servant told Naaman, Elijah says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. And he was furious. He had in his mind, he had traveled from Syria and he had kind of planned out how his cleansing should take place. He was a great and glorious man in his society, though he had leprosy. And no doubt, you know, his cleansing should kind of have some kind of glorious thing. In fact, he complained and said, we have two rivers in our country that are much better than the Jordan. And you're wanting me to go to that dirty Jordan? You think, Pastor John, why do you say the Jordan is dirty? Because it is. I've seen it with my own eyes. It reminded me of the creek that ran by my house when I was growing up. It was always brown. It was hardly, rarely ever clear. And uh, it's just at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, it's dumping out into the Jordan River there, and you get all the debris and stuff from the Sea of Galilee kind of running through there. It's just a dirty river. And Naaman said it was. But the servants of Naaman tossed some sense into him, saying, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. But he asked you to do this simple thing, to wash and be clean. And so he heeded his servants. He washed and he was clean. As long as he stood there and complained, he still had leprosy. It wasn't until he was obedient to the word of the prophet that he was made whole. And he had to dip himself seven times, I'm sure. And I think the same is here, too. As long as they stood and did not go to the priest, they remained in their leprosy. But as they went, the Bible tells us, they were made clean. But 15 through 19, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at his feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, 
Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Where Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now it doesn't tell us exactly um, that the Samaritan who returned received this extra blessing, but to me it seemed like he did. Jesus said, where's the other nine? This foreigner came back, a Samaritan, it tells us that. And so we assume by those words right there that the other nine were Jewish. They were going to the priest. And if you read back in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, this is exactly what the Jewish people were supposed to do when they were cleansed of their leprosy. They didn't go to the doctor. They went to the priest. And the priest had the authority over a, um, looking at the individual, seeing that it would cleanse. Seven days later, he'd look at the person again. And if the spots or whatever the issue was hadn't returned, um, sometimes they would go another seven days, but there would be a point to where the priest would declare the individual cleansed. There were certain offerings that they would have to give that was part of the cleansing process. But here was a Samaritan that came back to give glory to God and to thank Jesus. It was a foreigner who did this. All ten was healed, but only one had a grateful heart. And no doubt the others were thankful. But they didn't take it and make it a point to come and to give thanksgiving to God. How many times have you had friends or individuals that were in trouble? They don't go to church. They don't walk with the Lord. But there's trouble. They've turned to you to ask for prayer uh, in their behalf. You see God do a work in their life. And they know perhaps that God had done a great thing for them and they don't show up to church to give thanks to God. They just end up going on their merry way as if life had just continued on without God having no intervention in their life whatsoever. I believe this happens often, repeatedly. God steps in, he helps, he heals, he does great things for individuals who cry out to them and they are thankful for the healing, for the work that whatever God did in their behalf, but they don't take the time to come to worship, to give thanks to the Lord. So I believe this Samaritan, because of his grateful heart, because he took the time, because his faith there is being displayed, that he got a greater blessing. The Bible tells us in Psalm 50, verses 23, just one verse, Psalm 50, verse 23, whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show him the salvation of God. Whoever offers praise, they glorify God. But whoever orders his conduct aright, God said, I'll show you my salvation. And to live in the kingdom of God means that we must walk in obedience to the call of God upon our lives. So to me, it just stood out there that all 10 were healed. But the Bible tells us as they left, as they went in obedience to the word of God, 
they were healed, but only one came back and was thankful. Let's be those who have those thankful hearts. And finally, 20 through 37, the coming kingdom. He says in verses 20 and 21, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, or look, or see here, or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So it doesn't come by observation, by watching. By, it's a Greek word that means lying in wait or uh, critical observation. And I, I have to tell you, these words have spoken a lot to me because of what's currently going on. Since October 7th, Israel was brutally, uh, horribly attacked by Hamas and the crimes uh, that they committed against Israel are just horrific. Uh, there is a lot of denial over it. There are more videos coming up with it. Um, I don't, I just know they're horrible. I don't want to see the videos because it's so horrid, but um, babies with heads cut off and women being raped until death and it's just horrific things being paraded around. It didn't matter if you were young or old. And uh, there's been a lot of observing going on. This is it. The Lord's coming again. There's a war in Israel again, and it could be. But the Lord wants to remind us that it doesn't come with observation. It's not that we're to um, not be aware of the events going on in our world. I think we are to be aware of these things. But we do have a lot of people at this point, I mean, we were watching one of the news shows and almost every commercial break had some kind of Christian theme commercial on it from the rapture of the church to coming to know Jesus Christ um, and it's like I've never seen that many and all different ministries uh, advertising uh, at this hour it must be very cheap hour time on the commercial I don't know but they're all there at once and I hadn't seen that before I've seen commercials um, on this news channel that have a Christian theme before, but not all in one hour show. And uh, a lot of times we turn that show off because the language is horrific. So maybe they're targeting an audience where uh, the language isn't great anyways. And they're thinking these people really need to know Jesus. But there are a lot of people right now who are saying, look here, look there. And all I'm saying is be cautious. We are to be watchful. The word always tells us to be watchful. Um, is this the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps. But our concern is to be faithful till he comes, to do the work that he's called us to till he comes. So the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. He's not telling this to the unbelieving Pharisees in the sense that God's kingdom was in the unbelieving Pharisees' hearts because they didn't believe in Jesus. But it, it is understood to mean that it's within your reach. It is near. And I believe that's true to this day. To those who don't know Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is near. It's within your reach. It's through saving faith in Jesus Christ. And specifically in their day John 1 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us 
And John 1, 10 and 11 said, He was in the world, the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Lord was near. He was right there in their midst. And the kingdom was so near that all they had to do is reach out and believe. And so 22 through 24 says, And the disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here and look there. So he uses the same phrases again. Do not go after them. Do not follow them. For as lightning that flashes out of one part of the heaven shines to the other part of the heaven, so this also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So once again, a warning. He uses the same exact phrases that he spoke to the Pharisees, saying, look here, look there. Now he says to his disciples, they will say to you, look here, look there. But then he says to his disciples, don't go after them, don't follow them. When the Lord comes as lightning flashes from one side of the heaven to the other, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we are to be watchful, we're to be aware, but we cannot pinpoint the day of the Lord's coming. And here specifically, Jesus, speaking of his first coming, he tells his disciples in verse 25, I must suffer many things being rejected by this generation. In Luke 21, 27 and 28, it tells us the Son of Man is coming in clouds and with power and great glory. Now, when you see these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your head, because your redemption draws near. We're to be watchful. We're to be prepared. Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour of the Son of Man's coming. We're to be watchful, but we're not to be chasing down uh, various things, but to be aware of these things. So uh, be aware, but don't be in such um, a panic that we're not faithful to do business until he comes. He said it would be like in the days of Noah, 26 and 27. As it was in Noah's day, it will be in the day of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And so the people before the flood, much like the people today, and much like the people will be before the Lord's second coming, going about their daily routine of eating and drinking, getting married. In other words, life will continue as it always has. And they, many, will be caught unaware. As the Lord tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. They'll be caught unaware. And again, another example of Lot's day in 28 through 30. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sowed, they planted, they built. And on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So again, life was continuing as normal. People were eating, drinking, doing the normal things that they normally do. And yet when judgment came, it came upon that city suddenly, and they were caught unaware. And again, 
He gives the warning in that day, verses 31 through 33. Those on the housetop and his goods are in the house. Let him not go down to take them away. Likewise, one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. You can't take anything with you anyways. So if you're on a housetop, they had flat roofs in Israel at that time. So very common place to get away. He said, don't even bother. Just go. Just flee. If you're in the field, don't go back home to get anything. Just go. Just flee. And this call to remembers Lot wife. She did leave the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but she turned back and looked upon it. She physically left, but her heart, she never left. And she was, according to the word of God, turned into a pillar of salt at that time because in her heart she turned back to see the city that was being destroyed, a city that she had loved where she had had family. And those who live their lives without concern for the things of God, ultimately they will lose their lives. They'll be judged by God. But those of us who... Look to the Lord. We will find salvation in the day of the Lord. Our redemption will come. So he says in verses 34 through 37, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women, one will be grinding together, one taken, one left. Two men in the field, one taken, another left. And he answered and said, we're Lord. And so he said to them, wherever the body is, There the eagles will be gathered together. What a great verse to end our teaching today. (laughs) A great verse because what in the Lord, Lord, are you talking about? And you look in the commentaries and the commentators are saying, we're not quite sure what he means by that one. And there are two opinions. And it has to be the one left and one taken. Um... And it could go either way, that one who is taken is taken by rapture into heaven and to be with the Lord, or one who is taken in judgment. And those who are left are those who will be through the millennial reign of Christ. So it really depends on how you're viewing this. And I tell you that it comes down to these two opinions, that either it refers to the believer being taken to be with the Lord forever, and those left being judged, and then the eagles come and eat upon their flesh, we do know in Revelation 19:17 that there would be this great call from heaven to gather together for the supper of the great feast, feasting upon the dead at the uh, second coming of Christ. Or the opposite, those who are left are those who will go through the millennial reign of Christ. Um, I read Pastor Chuck on this. And he said he's open to this one. He said it doesn't matter however you want to view it. He said he wouldn't even argue about it. If you think the ones who are taken are the rapture, then go with that one. If you think it's those who are taken, they're taken in judgment. He said go with that one. He said at this point in my ministry, I don't have to be right about everything. So I'll just let that one. He'd actually talked about filing things away for more information. Have you ever had that situation? Which is, I don't have enough information on this yet. And so, until the Lord instructs me, I'm just going to wait. The preparedness is what is being told here. 
We're not to chase after things, look here, look there, but to be ready to serve the Lord until he comes and when he comes for his church, we will be those who will be praising Jesus for the great things he has done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the great things, Lord, that you are doing and that you desire to do in us and through us. And bless us now, Lord, as we worship in this one last song. And also, Lord, we pray for um, the fellowship that we'll have later after this service time. And bless our fellowship as well. We are the body of Christ, Lord, that gathered to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for this place. And we now ask for your spirit to work in our midst. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.